Good morning. If you would today, Matthew 28, verses 16 through 20. That's where we're going to be. Matthew chapter 28, verses 16 through 20. And as we get going, let us pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, love you. We thank you. Another wonderful day. Another beautiful, beautiful day to get together and encourage, uplift, love, and challenge one another. Brothers and sisters in Christ, to enter once more into the deepness and to the beauty, the sublime nature of you, the living God. As we serve you, as we honor you, help us. Help us to do better with one another and to do better just where we're at in all our circumstances. Father God, we thank you. We praise you. Give you all the glory and pray once again as we open your word, Holy Spirit, that you would empower it and that it would seek to the heart of all of us and move our minds, our souls, our very beings towards you. In Jesus Christ's holy name we pray. Amen. Matthew 28, verse 16 through 20. Uh, We've got here the commissioning of the disciples. The going forth, going out. We're going to be talking about that today. The proclamation for today is Jesus is in authority over our lives and with us always. That's what we're going to see today. The good news. Now, to get you there, i got to tell you a story. Now, every, well, Thanksgiving for the big one, in our family, we used to all gather at my grandmother's house. And this was a time when the cousins from afar, we've got family kind of really north Iowa or whatever, and we've got family on the east side, and we even got some family on the west side, and I think we got family in other states, but we really don't talk about them. I don't know why. We love them, though. Yeah, we love them, though. Uh, but Thanksgiving... We would get together at Grandma's house. Uh, Grandma's house was just a little bit down the road from our house growing up, my brother and I. And she had the farm. She had just the beautiful set. It was picturesque Iowa farm. Just a beautiful place to be. Um, I often remembered this because Thanksgiving was a time where we got together with the cousins. We played football, sometimes basketball. That kind of grew later as everybody started to drive and stuff. We all parked in the driveway and so we could never play basketball. Uh, but we used to do stuff Thanksgiving. That was family time. Now, for us growing up, uh, my mom, she had kids late in her life, so we were the youngest cousins. And so what we got to do is we really got to know our cousins' kids more because they were more around our age. And so we often, well, we played a lot with them when they were there, and they weren't really farm kids. And so you could get into weird problems with people that weren't on farms all the time. And one of those, one year in Thanksgiving, we decided after lunch to go out and jump on some hay bales. And we did this, and Grandma had these beautiful hay bales. Uh, There must have been at least 50 or 60 all kind of lined out in these rows. It was beautiful. And what we used to do is you'd hop hay bales. You'd play tag, and you'd do stuff, and you usually ended up shoving people off of hay bales. But that's what we did. And there were these nice round hay bales that didn't have the netting. They were just round hay bales. Pretty soon, about an hour in, I realized that we had 35 people 
on these hay bales, and we were all chasing each other, playing tag. And we even got the older cousins in. So we got some, like, it got physical fast. And we're doing this stuff, and before long we realized something. We were running out of hay bales. We were destroying these things. They're just going everywhere. And my grandmother comes out with my uncle, and they look at us, and they say, what are you guys doing? Little did we know that was not okay behavior. Now, when Tyler and I did it, it's different. We weren't destructive. It's our cousins. It was our cousins. No, but I got in trouble because I started the whole thing. Uh, but one thing that always stuck in my mind is Grandma's like, what are you doing? Why would you do that to them? Don't you know what we do with that? We feed the cows with that. You can't feed them like that. It's a, just a mess now. And it always stuck with me that there is a certain idea of what are you doing in life? We often ask ourselves, right? What are we doing? And sometimes we do it in a moment of frustration because, well, we're we're lost. Or we feel lost. Or maybe we feel frustrated. You ever feel that way? You feel at the end of your rope and you just think, what am I even doing? Well, here, the end of this, Matthew 28. You've got this weird moment with the disciples and with Jesus where they kind of have that same moment. What What are we doing? And Jesus says, I'm glad you asked. Let me tell you what you're doing. So here, if you want to read along with me, Matthew chapter 28, verse 16 is where we're going to start. Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. When they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything that I have commanded you. And remember, I am with you always to the end of the age. Now the first thing we see, this first kind of point, is the right place at the right time. Has that happened to you? Have you been at the right place at the right time? I often say to myself, I am at here at the wrong place and at assuredly the wrong time. And that's usually when I'm in trouble or doing something else. But here I'm talking about the right place at the right time. That's probably something you never really think about. Unless you're really blessed with good luck or with these just moments where people just always seem to, you just, you're always in the right place. I've never had that problem. That sounds like a good problem. But here, the disciples were in the right place at the right time. And what I mean by that is, verse 16 and 17. Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee to the mountain, to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him. But some doubted. They were faced with this task that Jesus had rose from the dead and what that meant for their life. Life is going to be different now. Not only did they serve a Lord that said he was God that constantly told them that there's going to be a different way the world functions now, that the kingdom of heaven is literally among us now, and we're going to have this whole new power that's going to be unveiled to the world. But in the midst of that, now Jesus is raised, but he also said he's going to go away. And that when he leaves, it's going to be us. Now, last week we talked about it, the idea of Pentecost, the idea that the Holy Spirit was our true empowerment. That without that, we don't have the ability to go forward and do what we're supposed to in Christ. Here in this moment, you see the disciples in the midst of the real world. They're faced with the task that our job is literally to go tell the good news of Jesus Christ to everyone. And in the midst of that, 
there's a lot of fear and there's a lot of doubt of what that's going to mean, what that's going to look like. Remember, these are not guys that were trained. These are not guys that were just born into this life. Jesus called them from very different lives, from right where they were, and he expected them to obey. Come along with him, and he'd show them. This is a whole way of life. It's not training. It's not teaching. It's not this whole classroom setting. It's a way of life. And here in the midst of this, first thing he says after looking them over, you can just see it, his eyes, glancing over all the apostles. Jesus saying, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. And now that's a good word. That's a good phrase. And that's a good sentence. But what that often I think might mean for us sometimes is, okay, so Jesus is going to be doing a lot of the work. That's going to be awesome. But then he says this next part, go, therefore. So immediately Jesus tells you who's going to rule the world and who's got the power now. And then he immediately says, and by the way, because you're working for me, you're going. It's going to be great. Go, therefore, he says. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations. That go, that often we have this idea that we're all supposed to have this in our head that the apostles were missionaries. They were told to just leave and go from place to place, just speaking the word of Jesus everywhere they went. I want to challenge you that that is not the entirety of that go. In that context, especially in that Greek, go does not mean strictly This idea of you're supposed to just leap through all of these contexts. You're supposed to go through all of these areas. That's not what that means. But the go actually has this idea of in the context you're at, in the circles you are, you're supposed to dwell there. Go. Dwell there. Be present there. It's not just an implicative to go out and go do something in action, but it's actually almost a way of life into where you are then and there. And look at this at the way the apostles live. They go from place to place, but they set up roots. They take time. They don't go on a whirlwind evangelism tour, and they just preach, 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 preach. They start to set up these communities where they live amongst the people, and they gather people around them that are often searching, seeking for the things they searched and sought for. Can you imagine? Peter reaching out and meeting people that were just like him. A little overzealous, a little maybe unhinged sometimes, a little zealous to cut somebody's ear off maybe, but a little unfaithful in the sense that we can't keep our eyes on Christ. And here in the midst of that, he meets these people and he shows them this life. Now what this actually does is this transforms the idea of missionary not to people that are specifically called to go do XYZ mission, which we have those but that each one of us is actually a missionary right where we're at. The call to go, therefore, is actually for all of us. As we're going to talk about later, it's about building disciples. Well, we just so happen to be disciples of Christ. We're all called to be that. So therefore, that go, therefore, is for us too. We fall into this. And here, going into our local contexts, our local circles, that's going to look different. That means that then we bring the love of Jesus with us everywhere we go. The people you work with, the people you struggle with in your life, your neighbors, this is your circle. 
This is your plan. This is your mission field. And how you interact with them, how you deal with them, affects the way the kingdom operates. If you want a good example, I really like spy thrillers. I don't know why, but I do. I like the, uh, the intrigue. I like to know, like, this guy is going to do X, Y, Z, and he's going to sink in uh, the Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy movie. I like that. That was good. It's deep. It's tricky. And it's always one of those things of who's going to get who kind of a deal. I like those. And one of the things that they have, this aspect, is a double agent. You know what a double agent is? This is just crazy to me. It's someone who is supposed to be spying on the enemy, and what they end up doing is, when they get over to the enemy, they are flipped by the enemy. And they're actually secretly spying on the people that originally sent them. It's confusing. I love the confusion of it all. Who's working for who? Who's doing what? In our reality, if you want to place it where we are, we're supposed to be going out and being missionaries, but often doesn't it feel like sometimes we're double agents? We're supposed to be out in this community to witness to Christ, but we find ourselves falling in with the people we're supposed to be witnessing to. We find ourselves falling into these circles and being unable to recognize the differences between us and them. We have no change. The love of Christ doesn't permeate our life. We struggle. We struggle to live out Christ in front of these people because we don't think of them so much as a place where we're supposed to be sharing and showing the love of Christ in everything we do, but we feel like it's just a normal everyday routine for us. We fall into the trap of the double agent, which is we sympathize so much with, well, quite honestly, the opposition of where we're at. These people are needed to be loved. These people are needed to be changed. These people, we're supposed to be flipping them because they're actually bound and they're actually horribly, horribly trapped by sin. It should scare us to want to leave them that way. Here, we're to bring the gospel of Christ into our circles. And to do this, we must share people's lives so that they can share Christ. We've got to actually partake in this life that they're actually in, and we actually have to encourage them and love on them. How this looks is you actually find out that you care for your coworkers. You actually care about the people that are around you, your neighbors. You actually kind of you ask them how they're doing, not because it's polite, but because you want to know. And when something happens, something horrible happens to a coworker or anybody, you want to know not so that you just know it, but so that you can actually pray for them, so you can love on them. The more you find out that, about that person that you really can't stand, the more you understand not that it's okay what they're doing or how they are, but you understand why they are the way they are. You ever had that moment where you suddenly just found yourself, I now know why the person I can't stand is the way they are, and... And it's really hard to dislike them. It doesn't make what they're doing okay, but it's you can't bring yourself to hate them. That that's that feeling of Christ coming in, moving into a situation. That go therefore is all about that, going therefore into this world. That you're literally sharing the gospel in the way you live. So Jesus is in authority over our lives and with us always. So we can be at the right place at the right time because it's right where we're at. Discipling disciples. Well, this means if you go on, we're supposed to go, therefore, 
and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything that I have commanded you. Notice there, you're supposed to create disciples of Jesus and not of the apostles. Jesus didn't tell them to go create disciples that follow your law. He skips over them and he says, you've got to always point them back to Jesus. You've got to always point them back to me. Now, this is unique. In this time, at this time, when you did this, when you took on with somebody, a great teacher, you took on the task of teaching and learning the way they did. You became a disciple of them, not of somebody else. You became a disciple of them. A worldview, a philosophy. To be a Platonist meant that you ascribed the works of Plato, but you learned that from some teacher of Plato. You learned his version, his vision. But here, the uniqueness of Christ is that you're not called to make disciples like you. You're supposed to make disciples like Jesus. We're supposed to skip ourselves. We're supposed to not point people back to us. We're supposed to point them always towards Jesus. And the reasoning is, you can't pollute the teaching that way. If you're always pointing people back to Jesus, that means every person you save is not a student of yours, but a brother or sister of yours. And brothers and sisters have this weird way of dealing with each other to call out one another. That's supposed to be our lot. A unique kind of love where we share in teaching. We don't lord it over each other. We share it with each other. Here, we're supposed to, in that teaching, point them to obey the commands of Jesus. The deep call of learning and growth and relationship. And the uniqueness is, Jesus says there, teaching them to obey everything that I have commanded you. If you go back just a little bit to Matthew 23, you get this uniqueness where you figure out what Jesus is after. Sorry, Matthew 22. Matthew 22, verse 36, Jesus is questioned by the Pharisees. And they said, Teacher, which commandment in the law is the greatest? And Jesus not for a minute shaken, says to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. That is the greatest and first commandment. And a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. And the simplicity of those two things is bound up the whole teaching of Christ and how the world is supposed to be shaped by God. And how we have this newness in that. And basically what he's getting after is that's what you're supposed to be teaching them. And guess what? Those two things, you think that's just two things. That's not a big list. That's a big enough list. That's a lifetime list. Because every time we try to think that we got it, we got the hang of this, we're shown very quickly we've missed it. We're still striving. We're still seeking. We've always just fall just a little bit short. We can't quite get there. Because usually we learn to love God better and fuller and we think we have a better knowledge of it. But then we suddenly just find ourselves at odds with our brothers, our sisters. And they're reminded of the second part of that, and love your neighbor as yourself. Here's my neighbor. I'm not loving them. 
Well, then we find ourselves in violation of the first one. Then we can't really say we love God if we don't love them. You see, it creates a lifetime of learning and of growing. But it also means that we're bound to community. The only way to truly live this out, especially this first part of loving God with everything we are, is in community. Jesus literally just said to you, in the middle of all of this, you are going to have to cling to each other and live in love with each other to know how to love God better. And he baptizes them. He says, baptize. In the name of the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. The very first community, the very first relationship, the Trinity. That's where we're bound. Uh, in our house... I'm often privy to interesting conversations with our kids. You guys, I'm sure, with your kids were too. One of the ones I found is the one I think is the funniest is the same one I used to have with my dad, which Kazai often tells me, Dad, when I grow up, I want to be like you. I find it heartening. I, I think that's good because I used to say the same thing to my dad. And in fact, you know what I do? When she says that to me, I say the same thing my dad always said to me. Honey, no, you don't. You want to be better than me. And it's just, it comes out of my mouth. And sometimes I don't like it when I sound like my dad, because I remember that I didn't like sounding like my dad. Like, I didn't like hearing that. Does she? Probably not. And then sometimes I find myself, man, my dad's a lot smarter than I used to think he was, because I'm sick of some of that stuff. I used to think standing on the couch, that wasn't a big deal. You're just jumping on the couch. It's fine. For whatever reason, when I see my kids jumping on my couch, I just think, that's my couch. Why are you jumping on my couch? And the words come out. Stop jumping on the couch. And I think, there's dad. He's right there in my voice. But that, I love that. No, you don't. You're going to be better than me. Shoot higher than me. And we used to say that, and my dad used to say that, and I never really knew why. As we got older, he kind of told us about his life growing up. Uh, his dad was an alcoholic. Uh, his dad beat them. He just was not there all the time. My dad basically raised some of his siblings, and that bugged him. It bugged him so much that he vowed that he wouldn't be like that. He's not going to be that kind of a dad. He didn't, he didn't touch booze. He didn't trust himself to do it, so he never did it. Now, he had a bit of a temper, but he never hit me. But he had a temper. And nowadays, they'd probably call it verbal abuse. But he always, always had that line in his head that I'm going to be better than my dad was. I'm not going to leave you guys. You guys are going to know you're loved. I don't know if his dad ever told him he loved him, but I know my dad told me in the morning, at night, if I called him on the phone and we were hanging up, he told me then. When we moved to Oklahoma, he hugged me. He told me he loved me. He told me he would call me and I would talk to him if I ever needed anything. And he loved me. He loved me. He loved me. And I think about that now. And I think about, he did that so that he was better than his dad. And when I tell her to be better than me, I think, you know, I really love my dad. I really love the example he set for me. But there are things I'm not going to do. My kids aren't going to know that I yell all the time. They're, that's not because I'm going to hide it, but because I'm not going to do it. Mine's not going to be a fatherhood of anger, frustration, but it's going to be one of love mercy when my voice is raised usually now it's out of fear 
uh, I've got daredevils that like to jump off of stuff. I scream, get down there, get down from there. I scream. But it's never in anger like that. And I think if you can do better than me, what kind of mom is she going to be? Man, she's going to put me to shame as far as being a parent. And I can't wait. I can't wait. I know some of you guys probably think the same thing. You can't wait. You want your kids to do so much better than you because you realize, like I do, but we're not. We're not always as good as we should have been. We could have done better. And here, this pull for Jesus is not just, don't make apostles like your apostles. Make them like I was making you. Always point them towards me because that's your standard. You won't measure up. And that's fine. It's something we push for. We want to be better than we were, but we know we're not going to stack up. There's always this ideal. And Jesus is saying, I am the ideal. Point them towards me. If you point them towards me, when you fail, you're free to apologize. Because you don't have to bear the weight of being a deity. You don't have to bear the weight of being a perfect teacher. You're not. All you have to bear is the responsibility of being like Christ. That's a lot better. It's still a heavy load, but it's a lot better. And that's where that community comes in. And here, making disciples of Jesus ensures we are confronting our failures and reaching towards Christ, not ourselves. Because once again, remember that proclamation, Jesus is an authority over our lives and with us always. Finally, the ever-present King Jesus. And remember, I am with you always to the end of the age. When a guy says that to you, we often think, oh, you're going to be with me. Oh, great. We've heard that before. Ah, I won't leave you guys. We'll make sure we get through this okay. But when that man's Jesus and the fullness of deity dwells wholly in him, the fullness of humanity dwells fully in him, and just before he says, I'm going to be with you always, he says, all authority in heaven and on earth have been given to me. That's a promise you can take to the bank. There's going to be no failure there. Here, Jesus is once again reorganizing the way we think of him. Remember, some of these, when they saw him, they worshipped him, but then some doubted. This reinforces in our head that just to think, oh, if Jesus would show me miracles, I could believe more fully in him, is not true. They saw the miracles. They saw him die. They saw him get taken away. And then they saw him alive again, and the holes in his hand and in his inside, and they still couldn't get it through their heads who he was when he claimed himself to be God. So we can relate. Sometimes we have doubts. Maybe some hesitancy. Here in Jesus, he reminds us once again, if I am who I say I am, you can trust me. To bear with you and to go with you. Here, all the authority on heaven and earth. There's nothing out of his realm, but also, guess what? That covers us. That means his true authority is over us, our lives. To walk with us, move with us, be with us. He cares about us, right? I've been harping on that for a lot of weeks now about the fact that God loves you. Not only does scripture say that, but I want you to actually believe it. Because it's one thing to hear it, and it's kind of like my kids do sometimes. Well, I love you. And they say, yeah, yeah, dad. It makes me want to say it louder and more. 
I love you. You need to feel it in your soul. That's what I want. I want you to feel that in your soul. That's why he's saying I'm going to be with you always. Not because there's screw-ups. Yeah, they are. and We are too. But because he actually loves them and he cares for them. He wants to walk with them. Here you have that baptism formula. Baptize them in the name of the Father and the Son and of the Holy Spirit. The reminder of the order of things. The creator of the world. The redeemer of all creation. And the sustainer. Living in and among us and around us. Working still. God is still creating around us. When we create, we are just echoing the Father's power in us. The great Christian music that you love, the great Christian art that you love, the great truths are echoes of that creation. The Redeemer, every time you take something back from a fallen world and you redeem it, relationships, baggage that you drop off in a fallen world and you get right with more of God and your brothers and your sisters. Redeeming, you see witness of Christ in the world. The sustainer, the hard times, the rough times, the horrible times of your life. That somehow, some way, you're going to make it through this horrible event, this horrible time, and God's still God because He sustains you. You're a witness to the Trinity working in and among you. The reason why we baptize these people in that name is because that's a remembering of who and what they are. They're not ours. They don't get baptized in the Allerton Christian Church. They get baptized in our church. But they get baptized into Christ's life, death, and resurrection. From Father, the Creator, Christ, the Redeemer, the Holy Spirit, the Sustainer. That's our life. Not our own, but theirs. We live in the power of God. This, uh, the bravest thing I've ever seen is we have a dog, Ginger. We have two dogs, Ginger and Belle. Ginger is tubby. She eats everything's food. She eats her sister's food, Belle. She eats the cat's food if we ever take her up to the bathroom because that's where the cat eats. You had to separate the two because the cat and the dog don't like each other. If I set down food, she eats my food. This dog is just, she's Teresa's dog, but in a lot of ways, I don't like her. Because she always eats. She just doesn't stop eating. And she's a coward. She's just a horrible coward. She's a loud coward, is what she is. She's half Chihuahua, half Jack Russell, which means she barks all the time and she's yippy about it. Um, when we take them out, and when we were lived in Oklahoma, we take them out and they would bark at everything, everything, everybody, every tree that moved, everything. The leaves blew too hard, she barked at those. She was scared of everything. She never barked because she was like going to protect me from it. She barked because she was scared to death of what was going to happen to her. But you put her with Teresa, and that dog suddenly thought it was like 80 pounds of muscle and might. And she just would march anywhere. Uh, when I would take her out to walk and stuff and we'd meet people, she would cower and then she would fall on her back and whine as they pet her because she was so nervous that what these things, like what people were going to do to her. But Teresa takes her out one day, and there's a pit bull. We had these pit bulls that kind of roamed around the neighborhood or whatever they belonged to a guy, and his fence was low, and the pit bulls jumped high. And this pit comes walking up to Ginger, and the first thing Ginger does is she haunches back, and I can see it from the steps, 
And Teresa's like, Ginger, come on, calm down. This dog's not going to hurt you. And before you know it, she chased after this pit bull. This pit bull's running, and Ginger's chasing after this, this huge dog. This tiny little dog is chasing this huge dog. And the only thing I could figure in my head is she thinks that if she's with Teresa, she's safe. No matter what stupid behavior she does, she's fine. Teresa will protect her, and she can protect Teresa. In a lot of ways, this is kind of it. I mean, Jesus is asking us to trust him and to go out and do the hard work of going based on the fact that he's with us. To be bold and to be brash and to be loving. Because we can. We can afford to. We have a Savior who's with us. We have a God who cares. When we reach out to share and to show the love of Christ, we don't have to worry about what's going to happen to us. We've got to worry about what's to say about Christ. Are we living this out? Are we fulfilling this? The task is Jesus claims full authority on our lives to guide us and guard us. But that really goes with the idea is that we're fulfilling his will in it. And that's where we find ourselves. That Jesus is in authority over our lives and with us always. But that we need that. We need that knowledge of knowing that he's with us. He hasn't forsaken us. As we get ready for our invitation hymn, I'm going to say a quick word of prayer, and then we'll have that invitation hymn. Father, Lord, we love you. We thank you. We praise you. We pray that, Father God, we don't forget. We don't forget that we've been called to go right where we're at into the circles that we surround ourselves with, be it at work be it with our neighbors, our family, our friends, that we're called to go there and to speak the love and the joy of Jesus Christ into those circles. To live in and among them so that we can show them who you are. And just as you called the disciples, you didn't call them after you made some really, really great points about how horrible lives they lived and how just big, huge failures they were. But you said, come and see. How would you guys like to be fishers of men? Help us to live a life where we can call others into the fullness of your love because they know we love them, because they know we care and they know that, Father God, you love them so much. If we haven't made that commitment, help us, Father God, to surrender our lives to you. And that once again, that call rings true. You're saying to all of us, come and see. Come and see. Test my love. We'll never find it wanting. Thank you, we praise you. In Jesus Christ's holy name. Amen.